0: As we enter this holiday season and prepare to welcome 2023, Maryland Realtors will be furthering our legislative and public policy agendas, focusing on business and housing issues. In the new year, we will observe the three-year anniversary of pandemic lockdowns, quarantines, disruptions, and uncertainty. As you know, 2022 was an election year and each of the top statewide offices in Maryland will feature new faces, a rare occurrence in our history. We believe this presents opportunities for fresh ideas to make their way to policymakers. In so many areas like housing availability and affordability, we need to stress that status quo is no longer acceptable as it clearly has not adequately addressed the underlying causes of our housing crisis. Today, we'll preview the 2023 Maryland General Assembly Session and Maryland Realtors agenda in other public policy arenas, like our relationship with the Real Estate Commission and other areas. Hello, I'm Chuck Kasky, Maryland Realtors CEO, and you are listening to Get Real Estate, the Maryland Realtors podcast. Joining me today to decipher the 90 day circus is Lisa May, Maryland Realtors Director of Advocacy and Public Policy. Thanks for being here, Lisa. Thanks for
1: having
0: me, Chuck. Is that legislative sessions immediately after election years are quiet because no one wants to engage in any big controversial matters. Uh, But I wouldn't bet on that, even if I could. But I can't, because even though we can bet on sports... Legislation is not a sport, except for some of us, that <laughs> kind of is. Uh, so let's start by, if, if our, our astute listeners know already that you are taking in a way uh, the place of Bill Castelli, as far as our in-house director of what we are now calling advocacy and public policy, which used to be government affairs. And So talk a little bit about why we are now focusing on advocacy writ large and public policy, which is obviously broader than just legislative, focused just on legislation. So explain your role now and how it differs from our typical lobbyist slash government affairs position.
1: Yeah, I think there are a lot of different factors that went into that sort of evolution from government affairs to broader advocacy, and some of those came directly from our members. If you think traditional realtor lobbying, we're taking industry-focused initiatives to the General Assembly. Once that adjourned, we'll do it will with the Real Estate Commission. But we heard more and more from our members that it's not the Insular industry issues that are making the biggest, uh, creating the biggest problems, making the biggest impact. It's things like housing supply.
0: Right.
1: And that is a much broader conversation that touches not just the General Assembly, that gets into local government advocacy. It gets into consumer engagement it gets into some executive branch departments that control, for instance, planning or um, housing grants and funding. So it is more all-encompassing if we're going to move the needle on housing and if we are going to better represent what our members are saying that they need, what realtors are seeing and, and what their their clients need, then it has to be more than just government affairs. It really does have to be that broader advocacy effort.
0: Right. And it also covers state, national, and local issues. Mm-hmm. Talk us through what the first session of a new term looks like, what kind of turnover are we, or have we, or will we see? What can you tell us about how that fits in with a normal uh, amount of turnover and whether what kind of leadership changes we'll see in the House and Senate? We have a little more stability than we have in the past few years. With a new relatively new Senate president and Speaker of the House of Delegates, those seem to have settled in the president and speaker. What about committee chairs, vice chairs, subcommittee chairs, vice chairs and, and general turnover? are we going to see a typical amount of turnover greater lesser? What are you what, are, what is your crystal ball telling you about that?
1: Yeah, you said in the intro that these sessions are uh, <laughs> a little calmer. And, Typically, and like that
0: conventional is, wisdom, yeah. That
1: is conventional wisdom, but I'll tell you, every time I hear that repeated, <laughs> I get more and more nervous, that that won't right? be the case. I do think, however, this year, yes, we have a normal election cycle, and we have mm-hmm. a new General Assembly coming in. Yeah. We had a little curveball with redistricting in right. there, and, and we had a couple of folks who you know, we're put into some very difficult districts and, you know, a handful who are not returning because of redistricting. I don't think the turnover was necessarily any worse than it was though in other Mm -hmm. election cycles. We typically see 25 to 30 percent and that's about what we had. And and in fact, it wasn't until I went back and looked at the numbers that the Senate so far, and I'll mm-hmm. explain that. So far, <laughs> was is, is actually a little lower than that. They were just over right? twenty percent. Oh,
0: okay. Okay.
1: But what we have to remember is, with a new governor, a new comptroller, a new attorney general, yeah, we are going to have complete turnover in our in our cabinet heads, in our department yeah. heads. So the turnover in the general assembly may not be done quite. Yet, and there are some committee chairs who have been floated to take over some of those departments. Now, I won't name names because this is recorded for posterity,
0: but <laughs> and if we're wrong, then it comes back. To right. we, we don't yeah, need a record of you know, how
1: that's wrong something
0: we were that, that people don't necessarily think about, but it could have a pretty big impact on our agenda because by Almost by definition, these are the higher profile delegates and senators, some of whom are probably in leadership positions, committee chairs, vice chairs, subcommittee, important subcommittee chairs and vice chairs, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And if they get picked up by the new administration, well, one's been announced, the Senate majority leader, right, Eric Libke is chief legislative officer. So there's one. And and we won't have to name others that aren't made public yet. We may know right. or think we know who they are, but at least the ones that have been made public. So, so that's something we can't necessarily plan for. So whatever turnover we know could be increased or almost certainly will be with a Democratic governor, <laughs> let's yes. be clear that the bench is bigger and it's it's Maryland and it's no secret. And so it's a bigger bench, and not necessarily they would look to people already in the public policy arena for to fill a lot of, a lot of these positions. Is that fair yeah. to say?
1: And yeah. even with the shuffling of individuals, even let's say that none of our committee chairs, everyone mm-hmm. stays put, no one goes to the administration. I don't know that that's necessarily going to happen, but right. there's going to be a rearranging because of what you said. We now have a Democratic governor and how it stood before the Senate president and the House speaker. They were the real drivers of policy within the Democratic Mm -hmm. majority of the General Assembly. Mm -hmm. Well, now you have a Democratic governor. How is that all going to shake out? How is that power dynamic going to, to take place? And even if everyone believes that they know how they're going to govern, sometimes it's a little different when you're actually put to the test of doing so. So how Senate President Ferguson, Speaker Jones, and Governor-elect Moore all interact with each other on a policy standpoint, I think remains to be seen as well.
0: Yeah. Let's launch into our initiatives then. And, and we'll start with legislative, and then we'll we'll veer off a little bit toward the end on our other public policy initiatives. But at least as far as our legislative initiatives, they seem to be kind of in, in two big categories. One are as i mentioned in the intro business related that are will definitely affect our members day to day business how they operate their businesses and then the broader policy initiatives regarding home ownership and things like that so let's start with the business stuff what do we have on teed up to address issues that we see out in, within the real estate industry
1: sure So last session, two of our big business issues, the affidavit for online CE and our pay at the table legislation, both of those made it through the General Assembly. So that freed up some space for us to create two new industry initiatives that we're launching this year. The first of those has to do with continuing education requirements for brand new licensees what we hear from brokers and from seasoned real estate agents is that when a brand new to the industry licensee is is writing that contract when they receive it it's not necessarily up to snuff maybe disclosures are are missing or the wrong addenda are used and and there's the sense that there's just not a whole lot of really practical nuts and bolts, like boots on the ground type education of here is how you be a day-to-day real estate licensee. Mm -hmm. We have the big picture stuff in pre-licensing, but we really need contract writing, disclosures, advertising, ethics and professionalism focus. So what public policy discussed is Not additional hours, because these are still new agents trying to build a business, expending a lot of funds with not a lot of income coming in. So not loading them down with new hours, but making the hours that are already required count and Mm -hmm. really having them make a difference in the work products that that realtors are putting out there.
0: Right. There was additionally conversation, and we're just kind of Exploring this a notion that maybe the pre-licensing education can help with that. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it would be a we'd have to work with the real estate commission. So this is a good example of something that is our is our advocacy and public policy at work, not just on legislative issues, but on regulatory issues as well. And we do have a very good working relationship with the real estate commission. Do you see an opportunity there to address some of those concerns? Because as many of us know, have a license to practice whatever profession we are in. The preparation for the license very rarely prepares you for actually conducting the business for which you are about to be licensed. And I can tell you, law school does not teach you how to get into court. And so that's a completely other skill set. So it's not unique to real estate, but is is there an opportunity there to look at the pre-licensing education and and add some more practical pieces in that as opposed to calculating an interest rate or, you know, how many square feet in an acre? I mean, you think there's some opportunity there?
1: It's interesting that this discussion of post-licensing kicked off a whole lot of other kind of Mm -hmm. spinoff
0: discussions.
1: I won't use Pandora's box because that seems to indicate something bad, but these are all good discussions of yes, pre-licensing, post-licensing, looking at commercial agency, in addition to residential agency, looking at property management. I think that this is perhaps one step in multi-steps that we will be looking at going forward and there are so many models out there of other states everyone handles it a little bit differently right and we certainly can look at that i will say there are states that have moved Toward a lot of pre-licensing education, the barriers to entry in some states are are very high. You know, maybe what's the
0: highest many, level. What's the most hours? Is it, it used to be Texas? Is it I think
1: high? it is still Texas, but Do you it's,
0: remember how many it was?
1: It's close to two hundred.
0: Two hundred. That's what the number yeah. I had in mind. Yeah. So so if you're listening and you're licensed in Maryland and you took your was it sixty hours of pre-licensing. Mm-hmm. To be able to sit for your exam, uh, just to be able to sit for your exam, the pass rate for which is still hovering about fifty percent, if I'm not mistaken, think about two hundred hours just to be able to sit for the exam right so talk about fifteen hours every two years. that's on the low end also state nationwide is that true?
1: It is, and once you start getting into because I believe it was Texas again who had a very large post licensing. Right. requirement. Between those two, there are states that get up to 250, 270 hours between pre and post licensing. And yeah, yeah. that is a significant amount of time and yeah. cost.
0: Yeah. and And I think that's important because I want our listeners to understand we're not advocating at this point anything that would be considered a burden on our members. So we're we want to be real clear about that on the one hand, because clearly there would be opposition to increasing, for example, the number of CE hours for renewal, and, and we're not suggesting that. So let, let me be really clear about that. On the other hand, <laughs> we hear literally every week a story about somebody who has been engaged in a transaction with a another real estate licensee realtor or not who was obviously unprepared to engage in in the real estate in the practice of real estate in an actual transaction and so while on the one hand we do want to not burden our members on the other hand we do want to address the concerns on not just professionalism, but pure competence. So that's a balancing act. And and it may be that you can't have one without the other. So I think that's the calculus. Is that is that fair to say?
1: I would say that that is fair to say. And certainly something that our policy committee's as we develop our future legislative agenda are are going to have to weigh just as they did with this post licensing bill
0: so raising the bar may involve at some point raising the barriers to entry I mean that's just a fact and and frankly, as a member organization that that may not be in our own best interests, <laughs> you know, and even nationally, if we have one point five million plus members, I've heard people say the right number of Realtors in the country could be seven, eight hundred thousand, and and we'd be fine as an industry. So you know we're not taking sides in any of this. Just letting our listeners know what kinds of conversations we are having internally and and externally around the country on what the industry actually looks like. What else?
1: Well, this one, our other pure industry bill, is a right. little inside baseball, and it has to do with broker succession. Our current broker statutes really date back to a time where the owner of the real estate company was also the managing broker. And in a lot of cases, that's not true any longer. So when a broker can no longer carry on the business of being a broker, The owner has to have a policy or a succession plan in place to name a successor, to take over the business or to wind it down if that's what needs to happen. And there are steps outlined in the code right now that govern that. Unfortunately, we've heard of at least two cases relatively recently where that process has broken down, where they tried to follow those steps and hit a roadblock, and it really left their brokerage in limbo, and they didn't have a whole lot of recourse. Taking a model that Virginia just put in place earlier in 2022, we would have essentially a little outlet valve. If you try to go through your succession plan and hit a roadblock, then the owner of a real estate company could petition the real estate commission to name a new broker. And hopefully this is something that no one ever has to use, and and it would only apply to a very, very small percentage of people, but it is a very important change in those rare cases for those agents, for that owner, and for any clients that they happen to be serving at the time.
0: Right. So the current law covers if the broker passes away. Mm -hmm. The second we closed a little bit of a loophole in terms of if the broker becomes incapacitated. So this is just another little cleanup piece of that, an iteration that we hadn't considered until now.
1: Well, to make the transition from industry to consumer, we have a a bill that we think is a win-win for both right. and it right. is in fact one of our top priorities for yeah. this session yeah. and that is our return of buyer deposits bill for those of you who have played along at home you will know that this is a repeat of a bill that we put in last year And we will, again, seek passage of it. This is an issue that we hear about constantly. All of the time. All of the time on our our legal hotline. This is one of the top issues that people call into our legal hotline about is Mm -hmm. that the buyer put in a deposit. They exercised a contingency properly within the contract, Mm -hmm. but the seller will not release the, the escrowed funds back to the buyer. And currently under Maryland law, you don't have to do anything as a seller. Your inaction can hold up a buyer deposit for months, for years, for decades. And that certainly does not help first time home buyers at all. They cannot they don't have tens of thousands of dollars in savings. They don't have home equity that they can tap into. They just don't have thousands of dollars that they can pull from somewhere else and go make an offer on another property. They need those escrowed funds back in order to move forward. Right, And it's also very difficult for the escrow holder, whether that's the title company or the broker, they have to maintain that account. They have to account for it each and every year and maintain it on their books So we think that this actually is a win-win both for industry and for consumers.
0: And it's not a brand new idea. This has been in place in several states for a long time. So it's not a unique approach. Is that fair to say as well?
1: It is. Our neighbors to the North Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. have had this in place for five or seven years now. And they Mm -hmm. saw a dramatic decrease in the number of disputed deposits Sure. in that state under this under this plan. So we think that this is really something that's going to help particularly first time home buyers and some of our lower income buyers as well.
0: Anything standing in the way of its passage this year?
1: There were some concerns raised last session by the land title association mm-hmm. so by the settlement providers They had real concerns that they were going to be caught in a dispute between buyer and seller because they released the funds perhaps inappropriately. We've made a few tweaks to the legislation, at least as many as we can make and still Mm -hmm. have this be a consumer friendly bill that provides some immunity for title companies if they are acting in accordance with the statute. And yes, of course, the courts are always there. The right. courts are always there for legitimate disputes, but in a case where there was an appraisal contingency and the house didn't appraise, a buyer should not have to go to court to get right. a couple thousand dollars back because right. everything will be eaten up by those court costs. It's just not a good consumer friendly solution, yeah. And that's and what mediation.
0: Yeah. And, and mediation is sometimes successful, but, not always.
1: Not always. <laughs> and if
0: anybody who's listening is, is interested, just ask your broker, what's the oldest deposit you have still in your escrow account in, as a company? It's a big company that's been around for a long time. The, the answer will be decades, mm-hmm. 30, 40 years. There's been some deposits in, in some of our big brokers or, or brokers who have been around for decades. They they have money in their escrow accounts that is that is decades old. And so it is a real problem. And and a lot of that money is never going back to the owners, and probably go to the state at some point. So uh, hopefully, this this will, like you said, alleviate some of those some of those problems. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else? I think that's it for the business issues that we have. Talk a little bit about the broader public policy initiatives, especially around housing availability and affordability. What do we? How we got to move the needle, right? I mean, set the stage a little bit. We are how many units short of Maryland? We I mean, we have to create in, in, in as we speak, as we sit here, we're 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 in a, in a housing deficit. And tell us what that looks like and what we have in mind to finally move the needle and get more housing in, into the marketplace.
1: Yeah, pre-pandemic, we were looking at about eighty-two thousand units that we were short, but over the last two and a half, three years of COVID time. We have lost construction workers. We have mm-hmm. slowed the pace of building. Interest rates have shot up, which has caused builders to pull back their inventory. All of these combinations of factors, we are now just shy of 120,000 units that we are short. So almost increased our housing deficit by 50% Yeah. just during the pandemic. So not only are we not chipping away at mm-hmm. our existing deficit, we're starting to grow it exponentially. And it really is time to engage in a very meaningful way and to start looking at new ways of producing housing because the old ways are not cutting it.
0: Yeah, and anybody who's interested in a little deeper background and some other proposals mm-hmm. could listen to our Previous month's episode about this issue, specifically proposals in Baltimore City, but issue more broadly. So, how do we hope to finally address what is really a crisis? Let's be honest, this is a crisis, and our members know it because there's so many buyers who have been have just gave up. They just got so discouraged and and, you know, or 12 or 15 offers on every single property. Now that has slowed for other reasons, macroeconomically, et cetera, but the underlying imbalance in the market still exists. So how do we hope to address that?
1: Well, we're going to make another push this year on what I hope are Realtors' three favorite letters in the alphabet, (laughs) (laughs) ADUs. Accessory dwelling units are a fantastic way to add more affordable units in a way that, is not as costly as traditional housing developments and it doesn't take the years and years of planning and permitting that a brand new subdivision would for instance some of these accessory dwelling units which to remind everyone that's a garage conversion a carriage house a daylight basement apartment it's finding space within our existing infrastructure where we can carve out housing and because water and sewer lines are already there, roads are already there, you don't have the same upfront costs as brand new construction and you can put more affordable dwellings even in really, really high cost areas where first-time buyers or where service workers really do not have a chance to live close to where they work or or where their family lives. So we have a statewide bill that is based upon AARP national model legislation, and it essentially says to local governments, you need to allow accessory dwelling units with a minimum of requirements on them. Obviously, building permits, health safety, all of that, we're not talking about unsafe housing by any means right but in terms of requiring someone to jump through you know a special use permit process or to pile impact fees or parking requirements on a very very small dwelling that might only hold you know one person um that's what we're really looking to do and right now it's up to each county each municipality to determine the rules For those, and a typical homeowner is never going to be able to navigate that system alone. So, this would create a statewide standard. Everyone's playing out of the same rule book, and that allows industry, entire industries to pop up around them. In places where you have seen more universal ADU legislation appear, California, <laughs> Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Minnesota, entire industries pop up kind of similar to solar panels. You have a company right. that will come in that will build it for you soup to nuts. And that's all you have to do. You you make a call, you file a building permit, and there it is. You, you mm-hmm. have housing, which is pretty amazing when you think mm-hmm. about being able to add what twenty to forty thousand units to our housing stock tomorrow, if we wanted to, if yeah. we wanted to,
0: yeah, yeah, it takes the will and the and that's the about they what they netted in California, and that's with about one percent of the people who who have the opportunity to to build an ADU, even just at one percent absorption rate, they still added over twenty thousand units, so. It it is it is a mechanism for addressing some of these concerns. What are the barriers again? uh, Oh, and shameless plug. Number two, we did an entire podcast episode on ADUs in case you're interested. And so check that out. (laughs) I'm not I have no shame. So, again, some of the barriers to adoption of what a lot of us see as kind of a no brainer, but obviously there's going to be opposition. What's that going to look like?
1: Certainly, anytime you get into separation of powers, that's really what this opposition comes down to. Landing and zoning has been the purview of local governments, and they want it to stay that way. They don't take too kindly to the state stepping in and saying, you need to do this our way, not your way. Right. And that's what we saw in the in the last General Assembly session. You had MML, the Maryland Municipal League, which represents our cities and towns and the Maryland Association of Counties come in, not because they hate ADUs, not because they hate housing necessarily, but they don't want the state interfering in their processes. But the state has in the past. When we have reached a crisis, when we had the Chesapeake Bay cleanup, when we've had other items that needed to be addressed, the state has stepped in. So can we now convince them that, as you said, Chuck, we have a housing crisis We're going to have to take more drastic action.
0: I think those are two important points. Number one, the zoning is relatively new in history. I mean, about 100 years old, but this, the firm, almost vice-like grip of local governments on planning and zoning land use in general is really even younger than that. And so it's not so, well, it's entrenched, but it's not such a huge part of our history that it can't be reviewed and looked at and tweaked a little bit. So I think those are important points for people to to keep in mind some of the history. We only know recent history, but it's not, don't have to go back that far to find a a time when even the federal government was engaging in some land use regulations. So it's it's not as earth shattering in a concept as some people make it out to be. So I think that's just an important point to keep in mind. What else you got?
1: Well, I think all of us know anecdotally or, you know, that conventional wisdom, again, that legislation and regulations have an impact on the costs of housing. That's not newsworthy. <laughs> um, yeah, right. It's just think
0: sprinklers or right. you know, sprinklers. Yeah, a lot of um, other things. Yeah,
1: that septic or you know the lot yield that you get if you're in a critical area. Right. In, you know, of the Chesapeake Bay. We all know this, but when legislation is being considered, do we really think about it? Do our policymakers? Really think about it. My background is local realtor mm-hmm. associations, and all too often I heard in ordinance debates, "Well, this only adds three hundred dollars to the cost <laughs> of a new home. Oh, this only adds a thousand dollars to a new lot." Well, you do that enough, right. and in isolation from one another, you really start talking about a significant mm-hmm. amount of money. Uh, yeah. Our friends, the builders, I, I know will back us up on this because yeah. they see a lot of those things piled on too. But recently I heard from one of our members on the Eastern Shore, he had a parcel that he was trying to develop. And it was very important to him that these be market rate affordable dwellings, okay? You're small, you know, like a two bedroom, something, a nice little starter home or like a place where a senior could downsize That was his goal. He wanted to do that because it was important to him. He started the permitting process. And by the time he got through Ches Bay, the local water and sewer requirements, he had to build a parking lot that a fire truck could turn around in, (laughs) but also not have too much runoff. Right. He found that not only could he not build those units affordably, he couldn't even build them for the median home price in his county. Right, And that situation is what has prompted this piece of legislation, which is to have a housing fiscal impact statement to accompany legislation at the state level. We currently have a, a fiscal and policy analysis that gets into know the costs to small business the impact to state and local government finances we really just want to have folks keep in mind as you're making policy understand all of the unintended consequences that you have and are you making a very bad problem even worse through policy through some words on the paper Mm -hmm. um you know This is a very long shot piece of legislation. I'm not expecting to come back in in May after the (laughs) session and tell you that we got this bill through, but it's to send a message. Yeah. It's to send a message that you need to be thinking about this. We we really need to. We can't shove it under a rug anymore and act like 300 here and 500 there and a thousand there don't matter because they do.
0: We have time for one more initiative from among a couple of left, but which one, if you would pick one that's on the top of our list or close to the top of the list, what's one more kind of piece of advocacy that we're going to be stressing this year?
1: Well, in terms of broader advocacy, yeah. let's yeah. say, we have a real opportunity right now. We have a new governor, a mm-hmm. new comptroller a new attorney general. And as part of their transition process, all of them are looking for policy input. So for the next four years, we have an opportunity right now to get items like this on their radar. So for the governor's office, we are submitting issues like housing supply issues to them, talking about Accessory dwelling units, talking about things like adaptive reuse of existing commercial structures and what the state needs to do better, more to encourage the conversion of those types of units. There are examples out there where people have had great success in, in doing so, including across the river in, in DC and Virginia. We can be doing a lot more there. So let's get that on their radar. We're talking to the attorney general's office about condominium and HOA rules. Again, to throw down a marker, because just like deposits, we hear all the time from agents about issues with the condo and HOA resale process, yes. whether it's yeah. fees, whether it's the disclosures the timing, they can't get the packet, they can't even find who the management company is. Right. So we're bringing those issues up. And then we're also talking about what can we do to really promote the programs that we already have. The Maryland right. Mortgage Program is fantastic. Yep. It's it fantastic. But mm-hmm. there are some structural things within the program that prevent it from being more widely adopted among mortgage lenders. So let's work with the new administration to see if we can either secure some funding to help with those or to remove some regulations that our mortgage lenders say are a barrier to wider adoption.
0: So I hope people can see and hear, I guess, here, that we have a full plate of issues that we intend to continue to advocate for, whether it's legislative or regulatory whether it's the real estate commission or the departments with whom we deal whether it's related to the business or the consumers we have all of those interests in mind and we will continue to pursue all of these and avenues and hopefully actually have an impact on on this and I can tell you some things are very frustrating that we've brought to people's attention year over year, year after year. Condo and HOA, for example, it's personally frustrating for me. I've been working on this for almost 10 years now, and we haven't gotten closer to updating those very, very obsolete and antiquated laws on condo and HOA. So we're really hoping to get re-energized, get new people uh, who who are really bound, and, and we are bound and determined, to, to get things done. We are re-energized. Uh, anytime there's a, a new general assembly, you know, we're looking for champions and we're going to identify the ones we have and some new ones and, and really make a, make a, make some statements this year. So Lisa, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for the privilege of your time. This is Get Real Estate, the Maryland Realtors podcast. I'm Chuck Caskey, Maryland Realtors CEO thanks as always to our esteemed producer, Joshua Woodson, and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Like us, share us, give us five stars if we've earned them, and give us feedback, including guests you'd like us to invite or topics to explore. Please be kind, stay safe, and as the great philosopher Mae West said, you only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough.